Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 36, originally recorded live on October 21st, 2011. Who wrote the Bible? Humanistic Judaism asserts that God did not write the Bible, and if not God, then who? And more importantly, why? In this episode, Rabbi Shalom explores the probable authors to the Handbook of Life. A reminder, the International Institute for Humanistic Judaism Colloquium is April 20th through April 22nd on the campus of Northwestern University, just outside Chicago, Illinois. More information, including registration instructions, can be found on our website, kolhadash.com. There's a collection of short stories by Shalom Auslander called Beware of God. Coincidentally, one of them is called God is a Big Happy Chicken. <laughs> but I'm not going to talk about that one. In another one of these short stories, a man named Stanley Fisher travels to Israel. He goes on an expedition in the Negev Desert, and in a cave in the side of a mountain, he finds 13 ancient stone tablets. He takes them back to his hotel room and saves them. He brings them for authentication to the head of the Department of Ancient Languages at the Hebrew University, who says, these tablets are wonderful, momentous, and then beats them up and kicks them out of the office, saying, I have a career to think about. He takes them to the curator of archaeology at the Israel Museum, who says, their value is unimaginable. And then he also beats up Stanley and kicks him out. Everyone seemed to agree the tablets were ancient, tablets were important, but what troubled the head of the Department of Ancient Languages at Hebrew University and the curator of the archaeology department at the Israel Museum wasn't the tablets' very old age, or even their very, very old age. What had the experts so utterly and completely freaked out was that the text of this oldest testament of them all was identical to every not-quite-as-old testament written after it, down to the very last letter except for one short paragraph at the very top of the very first tablet, a paragraph that seemed to have been dropped from the later editions, a paragraph that simply read, the following is a work of fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Any resemblance to persons living or dead is entirely coincidental, which caused a number of problems. So who wrote the Bible? We don't know. Thank you for coming. Shabbat shalom. (laughs) Just because we don't know who did write the Bible, there's a lot more to say than simply we don't know. After all, we can say who we think did not write them. We can explore when they were written and why they were written. We can even get a peek at what all that means when we turn to read the Bible ourselves. After all, this is the celebration of Simchat Torah, the celebration of the Torah. And if we don't parade it around, if we don't kiss it, if we don't revere it as a divinely revealed word, we nevertheless understand that the Torah is an important piece, a foundational piece of Jewish literature and culture. And what more honest and meaningful tribute can you offer to something than to learn about where it came from? It's what we do for our families, right? We go on genealogy.com. 
We want to find out where we're from, what our genetic code has to say, where our parents are from, an heirloom, what happened, when did we get this, who used it and why. Well, we want to know the truth. And so here is the truth of who wrote or who didn't write the Bible. Now the first follow-up question we have to answer first, before we can get at who wrote the Bible, is which Bible? After all, the fundamentalists who wave it at you assume that we need to rely on the Bible, we have to rely on the Bible, we should live by the Bible, but that sounds specific enough for me. Is it the one in my hotel nightstand? Is it the one in the pews at the synagogue? Is it the one in the Catholic Church? Because they're not the same. The Dead Sea Scrolls, that inestimable value, uh, valuable treasure trove found in the uh, Judean desert some 65 years ago, contain examples of every book in the Bible we have today, as well as other books that we didn't have in the current Bible but were of common currency in the area at the time, except for one. The book of Esther does not appear anywhere in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, it's a book that doesn't mention the name of God anywhere. It's a book that's all about people and their actions. It's a book that has an intermarriage between Esther and the Persian king. So you can understand why they might not have chosen to include it, but what it shows us is that at least in this community there was a sense of flexibility. You didn't necessarily have to take all or nothing. In the year 90 of the Common Era, some 20 years after the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls community was destroyed, a bunch of rabbis came together in a town called Yavna, and they made a decision about what would be in the Bible and what would be out of the Bible. There was some debate. Should Song of Songs be in? It's rather provocative. Should Ecclesiastes be any questions divine justice? Well, the ones we have today that are in made it in. And some of them did not make it in. But that doesn't mean they were lost forever. 200 years before Yahweh, the Bible had been translated from Hebrew into Greek by Jews living in Alexandria who spoke Greek. In fact, they spoke Greek better than they spoke Hebrew, which meant they had to translate the book into Greek so they would understand it. The Hebrew schools evidently were not so good in Alexandria. Well, when they translated that book into Greek, they also included some books that the rabbis left out. The books of the Maccabees were in the Septuagint, this Greek translation, but not in the Hebrew Bible. The uh, book of Tobit, the book of Judith, these are found in the Septuagint, this Greek Bible, made by Jews, but not in the rabbis' Bible, not in what we call today the Hebrew Bible. So how did this survive? Well, another group adopted the Septuagint as the core of their Bible. This is the early Christian church which was living in Greek. And so they preserved what had been a Jewish Bible and became the Old Testament. Because, of course, the Christian church was writing its own books that they would call the New Testament. Now, in the 16th century, another twist, Martin Luther decides he wants to get back to the Bible. No Catholic interpretation, no rituals. Let's go back to the source. Let's put it in German so everyone can read it. Not in Latin, so only the priests can do it. Let's give everyone access to the real Bible. But maybe the Catholic Church doesn't have the real Bible, said Martin Luther. Maybe they've added things to it. Who would have the real original Bible? 
the Jews. And so he took out the books that the Catholic Church had preserved for the Septuagint, but were not found in the Hebrew Bible, and made a new section called the Hidden Books, also known as the Apocrypha. And this is how even the Protestant Bible is different from the Catholic Bible, because the Catholic Bible preserves those books, Tobit and Judith and Maccabees, in the Old Testament. But the Protestant Bible takes them out or puts them in a middle section that's separate from either. Now this is to say nothing, the Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish Bibles, this is to say nothing of manuscript variations, where in one version of the Hebrew text, it's a vav. And in another version of the Hebrew text, that same letter is a yud, a little bit shorter letter. Or in another version of that Hebrew text, it's a resh, which is a little bit longer top. There are very slight differences. When you're doing manuscript, copying after copying after copying, it's inevitable. Mistakes happen. And so which is the right text? The exact, well, good luck. Not just, of course, manuscript variations, but translations. And translations sometimes are a clue to the original on which it was translated. If it says in the Greek version of the Bible, you open the door and a dog ran out. And in the Hebrew version we have today, it says you open the door and a cat ran out. You can guess that the original version of the Greek translation was different. Because dog and cat are pretty easy to translate. Now we know there are cases where translations lead to ambiguity. Most famously in the book of Isaiah, there is the word in Hebrew, Alma, which means young girl. When it was translated into Greek for the Septuagint, Alma was rendered as Virgo, virgin, as in the virgin birth. So a young girl will give birth, not that extraordinary. But a virgin shall give birth now, we've got a new story. So translation can have a big impact. And there are some that even believe that the Bible was given without translation in King James English. <laughs> and so, how do you decide which is the Bible? You see, the first key truth we have to realize is that the book of books is really a book of books. It's a collection. It's an anthology of many different books with many different authors and many different origins. You have a passage in the book of Judges called the Song of Deborah that is one of the oldest pieces of Hebrew literature. It dates back to before the year 1000 BC. And you also have in the Hebrew Bible the book of Daniel, which most likely dates to around the year 200 BC, if not the year 150 BC. Now imagine creating an anthology of Anglo-Saxon literature that includes the 9th century poem Beowulf, the 14th century poetry of Geoffrey Chaucer, the 16th century and 17th century work of William Shakespeare, the 19th century work of Oscar Wilde. Put it all in one volume and claim it was all written by one author. <laughs> now it's easier to imagine the Bible as the book of books when it was scrolls. After all, a Torah scroll is only five books. There are 24 books in the Hebrew Bibles. You can imagine shelves of multiple scrolls. It was indeed a collection of books that were defined as the holy ones. But once we invented this form called the Codex, where you could write on both sides of the paper, you could fit it in one book. And when you can see it in one book, 
it looks like it could have one author. Now there is an easy, short circuit, limited curiosity, traditionalist answer to who wrote the Bible. Who wrote it? God. Which Bible? This one. Which translation? What translation? <laughs> Given in King James. Or, you read the Hebrew, or you occasionally get a story of a translation that was divinely authorized. In fact, there's a, a document called the Letter of Aristeus describing the creation of the Septuagint. And the story goes that there were 70 scholars who went to 70 different rooms with a copy of the Hebrew Bible and a Greek dictionary, and they translated the text, and it was all exactly the same. Now, how could that possibly happen? Only a miracle. By the way, when King James wanted to translate his Bible from Latin to English, he picked 70 scholars. But I don't think they did the same technique. I think they broke it up into pieces instead of having them all do everything. Now, one of the challenges is that this belief that God wrote it, our version, translation, equally holy, well, that belief was broadly accepted from the very beginning by Christians and by Jews. And even Islam believed that Moses and Jesus were prophets and that Jews and Christians did indeed have written revelations. They were called Ahl al-Kitab, the people of the book. Although, of course, wherever their books disagreed with the Quran, of course, they must have changed it because the Quran was exactly right in the Word of God from a Muslim perspective. Now, this belief was so strong that even someone who wanted to question him had to be very, very careful. In the 12th century, there was a well-known Bible commentator named Abraham, Abraham Ibn Ezra who had some questions about Moses writing the Bible. After all, in Deuteronomy, it says in the same book, Moses was the most modest and humble man who ever lived, and Moses was the greatest prophet of all time. Now, how could the most modest man of all time write that he was the greatest prophet of all time? And it also, of course, describes at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses' death and what happens afterwards. Again, challenging. But when, when uh, Ibn Ezra highlighted this, or highlighted lines like, and this is what they call the place to this day, if Moses wrote it five minutes after it just happened, why would he say, and they call it this, to this? Well, that makes sense if it was written hundreds of years later, but why say it then? Well, he would highlight the issue, and then he would write, Misha Yabin Yabin, whoever understands will understand. <laughs> and that's all he can say. And look what happened to Baruch Spinoza, who drew on Ibn Ezra and said, I don't believe that Moses wrote the Torah. You know, he wasn't just kicked out for his theology. It was also for challenging that the Bible and the Torah specifically came from Moses and was divine. Even today, in Reform and Conservative synagogues, where rabbis have learned in seminary a lot of what I'm going to talk about, they still say this Torah blessing. V'zot ha-Torah asher san Moshe l'fnei b'nei Yisrael al pi Adonai v'yad Moshe. This is the Torah that Moses placed before the children of Israel by the mouth of Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the hand of Moses. This is the Torah 
Moses placed the mouth of God the hand of exactly this Torah. Never mind the manuscripts, never mind the history, never mind the doubts that scholarship has raised over the last 400 years since Spinoza. After all, when you read the Bible, you begin to think the traditional version that God wrote it, well, questionable. That it's always been true exactly the way we have it. Well, maybe not. For example, there are some contradictions when you look at different books. I mentioned at our memorial service at Yom Kippur this year, the date of Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the major fast day, remembering the destruction of the temple. There's a disagreement in the Bible because the book of Jeremiah says it was on the seventh day of the tenth month. And the book of Kings says it was on the tenth day of the tenth month. Well, which is it? What the rabbis did, of course, was they harmonized the two, and they said, well, the fire began burning on the 7th, reached the Holy of Holies on the 9th, and then smoldered out by the 10th, therefore, we'll observe on the 9th. Very clever. It doesn't get around the fact that one says it was one day, and one says it was another day. What is the name of Moses' father-in-law? He has two different names. What is the name of the mountain where they received the revelation? Is it Sinai or is it Horeb? It's also called Mount Horeb in other places. What are the names of the holidays? Is it Chag HaAsif or Chag HaSukot? Well, it's called both. And there are references that just don't make sense given the time and the place. Abraham is described as having come from Ur Kasdim, Ur of the Chaldeans, but the Chaldeans didn't show up in Ur until a thousand years after Abraham lived. And what about Noah and the animals? Remember, it's supposed to be two by two, right? But if you read the Bible, in one chapter it says two by two, and in another chapter it says take one pair of the unclean animals and seven pairs of the clean animals. And in both cases it says, and Noah did what God told him to do. Well, which one? How big was the ark? You know, how many rooms did you need? Well, there's two different versions. There are certainly disagreements once you start digging in the ground with the archaeological and the anthropological evidence. What happens after the Exodus? They conquer the land of Israel. They wipe out everybody. Except there's no evidence of that. When you burn down a village, there's evidence. There was not a massive labor burning over everything. In certain places, sure, but not everywhere, not all at the same time. Was there even an Exodus? According to the story, 600,000 men left Egypt. You'd think they would have broken a few pots on the way. Left the latrine. But that kind of a population moving at that time in the world would have some reflection in sources of other people. Nothing. Or very minimal, if anything. Which was the more important kingdom when there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah? Well, if you looked at the archaeology, if you looked at the evidence of outside peoples recording their encounters in the area, you would think it was the northern kingdom of Israel. But if you read the Bible, you would think it was the southern kingdom of Judah. I'll give you one guess which one got to write the book. <laughs> is it plausible that Methuselah lived 900 years? That Noah lived that many years? By the way, it says in the book of Esther that Mordecai was of the generation taken into exile. And if he lived at the time when the book of Esther supposedly happened, he would have been 125 years old. Really? And after all, many of the books have a claimed author. 
The book of uh, Psalms is ascribed to David. The book of Proverbs is ascribed to Solomon. Even the book of Ecclesiastes is ascribed to Solomon. But when you read Ecclesiastes, it reads so much like Hellenistic philosophy, like the philosopher Epicurus, who lived in the year 450 BCE, more or less. Just doesn't sound like it was from someone who lived in the year 1000 BCE, like Solomon did. And who knows if Solomon or David even knew how to write, given the time and place in which they lived. Now we find, of course, also similarities with surrounding cultures. The Jews aren't the only ones with a god named Good Hey Bob Hey, because the Canaanites had one too. Except in the Canaanite version, he had a brother, and he had a sister, and he fought his brother over the right to marry his sister. And they had a father, whose name was El, like Elohim. Well, those God names come from somewhere. There's a flood story in Near Eastern literature in Babylonia. There are creation stories. There's even a story of a king who was the daughter of a god, of a goddess, but she couldn't keep him. So she put him in a basket, and put the basket on the water, and the basket was found by a princess who raised him in the royal house. Ever heard a story like that? <laughs> Maybe once a year? In spring? But most importantly, when we look at the Bible, we see all of these patterns and agendas that come out. Why does it spend so much time in the Torah focusing on priestly sacrifices and rules of priestly purity? Maybe the priest had something to do with regular. Why does it focus so much on the number seven, seven days of the week? Seven clean animals and one pair of animals. Seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean animals in the Noah story. Why are some people praised and other people criticized? Why is it when describing the tribes that come out of Jacob and his sons, some of the sons are from real wives? One of the wives is beloved, one of the wives is not. And some of the sons come from concubines. Maybe those tribes of those sons are of a lower status in the national grouping. Because after all, wouldn't you rather be from a wife than a concubine? Wouldn't you rather be from the beloved wife than the not-beloved wife? Well, you can even see the use of divine names. Sometimes God is yud Hevave, Adonai. Sometimes God is Adonai Elohim. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's just Elohim. Which is it? Maybe there's a pattern for when it's used and when it's done. Alright, so those are the doubts. Plenty of doubt. So now what positive knowledge can I give you about who did write the Bible? I promised I would give you more than we don't know. Well, it would take the time of a graduate seminar of many years. So I'm not going to give it to you in the next ten minutes. But I want to give you a brief outline of some of the pieces. And there are plenty of resources I can direct you to. We have a class, actually, on Monday nights in the congregation. You're welcome to join us. Actually, we're going to be turning to study the Torah and the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, in the next few weeks. Check out your shofar for dates and times. But you're welcome to join us for that, even to drop in for that topic. But as a brief overview, again, because it's not a book, but it's a book of books, which pieces are which? The Torah itself, those first five books, most likely composed of four different sources that have been blended and cut and pasted together. They're often known by the names of the gods that are used in them. The J document uses the name Yahweh. In German, you would uh, say a Yah sound with a J. Um, and you'll uh, see a lot of creation stories and Noah stories that have 
uh, J document focus on the kingdom of Judah or on the god Yahweh was just that name. There's the E document, which focuses on Elohim, another name for God, but also on Ephraim, the northern tribes of Israel. You have the D document, mostly contained in Deuteronomy, which is a particular theology of reward and punishment in this life, if you follow the rules. And the P document for priestly, which means all of the rules of purity and regulations, all the times that it's Moses and Aaron, and not just Moses. Because guess what? The priests want to hear a lot about Aaron, because he is the first priest. Now, beyond the Torah, you turn to the history. You have the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, the books of Kings, and these are some kind of Deuteronomic history. That is, it takes the theology of Deuteronomy, and then it applies it to history. The kings that are good followed the rules, and the kings that are bad broke the rules. And in particular, an important rule for the Deuteronomic version is that there is only one God worthy of being worshipped, and that is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. He is a very jealous God. He does not want you looking at any other gods, right? like jealous husbands. Don't even look at anybody else. That's Yahweh. He is a jealous God. Only look at him, only worship him. Anyone who does anything else is bad. Even though, in geopolitical terms, the kings that worship other gods are much more successful. You, know, you can draw the opposite lesson from what Deuteronomy wanted you to learn. Because King Omri in the north made an alliance with the Canaanites. He became very successful. And the kings of the south that were Yahweh only kept getting besieged. And then a king in the south broke with that past. His name was Manasseh. He ruled for 45 years and was successful. And the next king broke with Manasseh, reestablished the Yahweh on the cult, and was killed at 35. Well, what's the right lesson? Deuteronomy's point is, worship only this God. There's also a lot of parallels between the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and that theology of Deuteronomy. Now, in the books of the prophets, there are actually, in a Hebrew Bible, generally, they're called four books, even though there are a lot of prophets, more than four. They're called uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And the so-called minor prophets are lumped together into one selection. Whereas in the uh, Old Testament, or a Protestant Bible, they are scattered around and spread out a little bit. Well, the thought is that these are collections of sayings of famous people, seers who claim to speak for God. Now, we have people today who claim to speak for God. One of them predicted that the world was ended. Again, well, he seems to be equally wrong the second time. Or maybe it's the fifth time. I haven't been following his uh, pronouncements. Well, we have prophets throughout history. Here's another example. They have sayings. Those sayings are collected. And sometimes they're saved by a school. Because there might have been even three Isaiahs, not just one. Because it seems like there was one Isaiah who lived before the exile in 586 BCE, one Isaiah who lived during the exile, and one Isaiah who lived after the return from exile. Or else, he made really good guesses, or knew a lot of history, and wrote it back. But chances are, there were three of them. As I mentioned, the book of Psalms is ascribed to King David. Who knows if he wrote any of them, but if he was even there. But more importantly, it was the practice of worship at the temple. We know from later sources, from rabbinic sources, that these were songs of going up and songs of going down when you rose up and came down from the Temple Mount. There is a whole collection of wisdom literature that comes out of the encounter with Hellenistic philosophy in the 4th century, the 3rd century BCE. The book of Proverbs, the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes I mentioned. We also have wonderful examples of folk literature, very hard to date because who knows when they came out. 
their stories of love and excitement. The Book of Esther, Ruth, Song of Songs, and wonderful love poetry, and even the Book of Lamentations, remembering the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem. But at the end of the book, it's always important what you find at the end. It's a priestly history. It redoes the Book of Kings. But now, the kings are not the center of the story. The center of the story are the priests. And the, one of the last books of the Bible, before Devray Hayamim, the Chronicles, that sort of wraps it all up with a review, is a book called Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, it describes a return from exile to the land of Israel, including a description of the very first Simchat Torah. But the reason why I want to read to you some selections from this description and end with this, is that this is not only the first Simchat Torah, this might be the first time they've ever seen a Torah. Because it may well be the case that the Torah, this compilation of sources, existed maybe in some form before, maybe Deuteronomy existed before the exile, but the final form of the final Torah, not exactly every word that we have today, may well have been brought back by the priests from exile. When the seventh month arrived, the Israelites being settled in their towns, the entire people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the sacred Torah to Moshe, the book of the teaching, the Torah of Moses, with which Yahweh had charged Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the teaching before the congregation, men and women, and all who could listen with understanding. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate from the first fight until midday. The ears of all the people were given to the scroll for teaching. Ezra opened the scroll in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. As he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with hands upraised. Then they bowed their heads and laid themselves flat before Yahweh with their faces on the ground. And the Levites explained the Torah to the people while the people stood in their places. They read from the scroll of the Torah of God, translating it and giving it sense. So they understood the re There's no reading without interpretation, you see. Even the first time they're reading it, someone has to explain it to them. Nehemiah, the Tirshaad, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe and the Levites explained to the people and said, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. You must not mourn or weep. For they were weeping here. These are all, this is all news to them. Look at all the rules we've been breaking. And we didn't even know it. He said to them, go and eat choice foods and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those who have nothing prepared. For the day is holy to our Lord. Do not be sad, for your rejoicing in the Lord is the source of your strength. Rejoice in the book. They went out to eat and send portions and make great merriment, for they understood the things they were told. And on the second day they come back and they find in the teaching that Yahweh commanded Moses, the Israelites, to live in booths during the festival of the seventh month. In Sukkot. Ours happened to blow up. But, stupid. But the idea of building Sukkot is highlighted here in Ezra as a commandment that God gave to Moses. They should live in there for seven days. Bring leafy branches of olive trees, pine trees, myrtles and palms, and other trees to make booths. So they went out and made them. The whole community made them, and it says in chapter 8, verse 17, the whole community that returned from captivity made the Sukkot, made the booths, and dwelled in the booths. The Israelites had not done so 
from the day of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the scroll and teaching of God that day from the first to the last day. They celebrated the festival on the uh, seven days, and there was a solemn gathering on the eighth. In Hebrew it says, That's the phrase, Shemini Atzeret, the end of Sukkot. That was the end of the holiday. But they had not done Sukkot from the days of Joshua. In other words, from ever. This is the first time, according to Ezra, this is the first time they're doing it. If it had been written in the Torah of Moses all that time, 700 years, and they'd never done it? Well, maybe they'd never done it. Who wrote the Bible? I gave it away. We don't know. But we can have a good guess at who didn't. We can also have a good guess at the kind of people who wrote the kinds of literature we find preserved in the Hebrew Bible we have today. This is not all of ancient Jewish literature. There are other books even referred to in the Bible that says, and the rest of the story is in that other book over there. They don't have that other book anymore. But it is the oldest Jewish literature that we have. We want to celebrate our honest roots. We give our past the dignity of being what it was, and it gives us the dignity of celebrating the truth. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.